Well, good morning, guys. Good morning. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here. And um, thank you for joining us for our five-year celebration. Um, I've been reflecting a little bit, obviously. Uh, that's what you do at events like this. And uh, honestly, it really is overwhelming um, what God has done. Uh, I had never dreamed, um, honestly, that, that this is where my life would go. And then when we started this journey, uh, had no idea the joy, the challenge, the excitement, the life that would come uh, as we build a community together. Uh, I just started with a fairly simple idea. If we start, if we start by planting the gospel, a community is going to grow. And, uh, and so that's what we labored to do, uh, to plant the good news that God loves us um, as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. And, uh, and as a result, um, things have happened. Right over the last five years, we've, we've seen dozens of baptisms, every single one of them, uh, a, just a joyful celebration of faith in Christ and new life. We've seen hundreds of people brought into community and connected with others, sometimes for the first time in their life, really being brought into deep, transparent, vulnerable community where they can be honest about themselves, the challenge they face, the, the doubts that they struggle with, the, the hopes that they want to cling to. Uh, coming together around their faith and, and finding genuine life-on-life community, right? Hundreds more served through our generosity as we have moved out to love our community and to serve our community. We have, we have seen um, some pretty remarkable milestones, right? We saw the launching of our first daughter church uh, a year and a half ago. Heights Church in Collinsville um, is meeting this morning, right now, right? They're, they're, they're growing and thriving. Um, we sent them out a year and a half ago, and in fact, we're getting ready to send out our, our second daughter church this fall, uh, Access. Uh, they're going to be going over to Troy. Um, this is a tremendous privilege, right? These are things that uh, a lot of churches never get the opportunity to do, and yet in our five years, we have been able to, to do these things, right? Um, we bought a building. Holy cow, are you kidding me? Um, a five-year-old church. We, we bought a building, and it's being renovated right now. It is like literally 30 yards from where I stand, and uh, it is in the process of being torn apart and put back together so it can be used for, for worshiping God and advancing the gospel into this community, right? God has worked through us to do these things, right? Our, our generosity, our joy, our pushing into our own discomfort and then pushing through that barrier to a new place of joy, so thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you for being on this journey with me. Thank you for being Trailhead Church and coming together and just joyfully embracing the gospel. This morning is a celebration. I mean, there are so many, many stories of life change. That's my favorite part, honestly. And I, and I get to hear those stories probably more than anybody because I get to go and sit in the coffee shop across from people and just listen to them unpack their stories. So many stories of people discovering grace of people coming to just grapple with the reality that they are loved unconditionally. And then watching how that love comes in and, and melts down their self-defenses and frees them from, from, from the behaviors of their coping mechanisms of, of hurt and rejection that they carry with them. So you guys, thank you. And Trailhead, happy birthday. I never know whether to call it an anniversary or a birthday. I don't know which. Uh, we are a or living organism, scripturally, right? So I guess it's a birthday. We just turned five, which in church years means we're like 100, um, right? Not really. Um, but it can feel that way sometimes. So guys, thank you. And guests, thank you for joining us this morning and joining into our celebration. You're definitely welcome this morning. 
Uh, today we are continuing in the book of Acts. Okay, we've been studying through the book of Acts, which is a book of movement. God on the move uh, to, to, to move his mission into the world, his mission of love, to see lives change, to redeem and restore. And so this morning we're going to continue. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and just raise your hand. We have some in the aisles and they'll be happy to pass them down to you. Um, don't feel awkward. Just raise your hand and wave, and, uh, and, and somebody will pass you down one. And uh, if you're on the end row, don't raise your hand. Pick one up because um, nobody will pass it to you. Um, just telling you. Uh, so we're going to go to Acts chapter 2. That is page 911 in our Bibles. And um, we're going to be looking at Acts 2.42 through 47. If you've been with us over the month of January, this passage should be becoming very familiar to you which honestly is part of my hope, okay? I don't keep repeating this over and over with the attempt to bore you. I, I, I hope that it's actually becoming so familiar to you uh, that maybe you can even start quoting it. Um, that's my goal. This is such a central and important passage. All right, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. All right, we have been looking at um, the, the values that drove the early church, right? That's such a critical phrase when, when Luke says in verse 42 that, that they were devoted to these things. What, what he's saying is that these are the values that drove their behaviors. These are the values that brought them together and helped them overcome their differences. These are the values that helped them move into a season of tremendous sacrifice without it feeling like sacrifice. It felt like joy. It felt more like investment, right? They were, they were investing. They were giving things up. They were sacrificing. But it was because they were yearning and reaching and moving towards something that was better. There was a promise in front of them that they didn't want to miss out on, right? And, and these values that we've been unpacking um, are, are spelled out for us, right? Um, they are our core values. These are, this, is, this is the passage that, that when I was formulating Trailhead Church's core values, I was praying and dreaming that we would be a community shaped by these values, right? So we, we value truth. Right? It says they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, which means that they were studying the Word of God and opening it up and asking simple questions like, how does the Word of God impact my daily decisions? Where's the intersection between God's truth and the challenges of, of my life? And letting God's Word speak into their decisions and their values, right? And so they valued truth. They, they valued community. This, this coming together of the people of faith. Right? They weren't um, interested in just showing up and, and having a polite handshake and, and putting a check on the attendance box. Man, they, they were after fellowship or community, this idea of sharing life, life on life. Right? They shared their joys, and they became more joyful. They shared their pain, and it became more tolerable. They grew together as they shared their new life together. They were devoted to community. They were devoted to prayer. Right? They were devoted not just to treating God like a vending machine and, and trying to, to push the right buttons to get the right things out of him. They, they came to him as the, the one who was ultimately delightful, the one who was ultimately beautiful and worthy. 
and they came to meet him in prayer, and, and, and they came together individually, and they came together corporately to pray, to speak to the God who had worked on their behalf and was continuing to work. And they were driven by a sense of mission, right? Which means, essentially, they, there was a deep purpose that drove everything they did, right? Mission always speaks to purpose. They were driven by a purpose that made sense of their lives, right? Every context, every, every struggle, every joy had a context that they could understand because there was a purpose. They understood that God was on mission to redeem and restore, and that this season, this age in which we live was, was given to us for a purpose. We were given a part in that mission, and once you understand your part in that mission, it helps you understand your purpose in life, and so everything gained this new purpose and this new motivation as they understood how they fit into what God was doing. This morning, we're going to be looking at the value of worship. It says that they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Um, And and for some of you, I know when you read that, the first thing you think is not worship. (laughs) Sounds more like they were devoted to food, right? A little bit more like we're we're kind of the hipster uh, foodies of today. Um, You know, like we are devoted to our food, man. You need to try the this over here and the bagels over here. The you know, I'm saying no. The breaking of bread was was kind of a, a code way of speaking about communion. Right? It was called the breaking of bread because that's the, the heart of, of the, the symbol, right? Jesus broke the bread at his last supper with them. And, and, and so it was for them an experience of worship. Now, we're going to talk more about communion. I'm going to tie this in to how it fits to communion. But I want to spend a little bit of time and just talk about worship. Because we all come to the table with certain expectations and certain thoughts about worship, right? So when you think about worship, worship's really a religious word, isn't it? I mean, is there really any other context in which you, you talk about worship, right? You can talk about community in non-religious contexts. People are very comfortable with that. You can talk about truth in non-religious contexts. It, it might become controversial. It might be more of a debate about whether there actually is truth. Um, but when you talk about worship, man, it's, it's, it's almost uh, intrinsically a, a religious word, right? Because who worships? Well, religious people, right? Religious people worship. So when you think about worship... You probably think about your religious experience, your history with worship, right? If you grew up in a more formal, more liturgical church, when you think of worship, you might think of sacred spaces. You might think of silence and liturgy, standing and sitting, right? You you may end up associating it with the smells and bells, right, of, of liturgical worship, right, the smells and bells of, of your childhood. If you grew up in a more expressive church, it's very different for you, man. Your, your idea of worship is, is, is hands in the air, right, just, just the music striking a chord that, that makes your stomach kind of just churn with the beating of your heart, and, and, and you know it's getting really good when everybody in the room just starts swaying like wheat in the field, right? And you look across, and all oh, you see are hands waving, right? That worship for you is this, this transcendent experience of, of emotional um, wheat blowing in the wind, right? Maybe you're more like me. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. That's not my experience. Um, we had a few religious uh, experiences, but for, for most of my childhood, we simply didn't go to church. I grew up in Northern California, where uh, during the 70s, um, 
when I was a kid, uh, the hippies didn't realize that the 60s were over. Um, and so we, I grew up in Northern California and, and worship there were the strawberry fields forever, man. You just, you walked the bluffs and there were wild strawberries and, and wind and ocean. And it was, so here's the thing, no matter what your background, you're probably going to tr- associate worship with a pursuit of the transcendent. You know what I'm saying? Right? However you define that. It's a pursuit of the experience of the transcendent, something that is beyond the normal physical plane. And so whether it's the smells and bells of liturgical worship or whether it's the, the, the wheat blowing in the wind of, of, of the, the more expressive or maybe it's the, the, the more spiritual, um, uh, we wouldn't necessarily call it formal religion, but it's still a very spiritual kind of the hippie religion. Whatever it is, it's the experience of, of the transcendent. And what ends up happening then is we see worship as kind of important, Kind of enjoyable, maybe, but pretty much optional, right? I can do it if I, if I need to, if I want to. I can avoid it if I, if I don't, right? It's optional. You guys, we couldn't be more wrong. We are all worshipers, and we are all always worshiping. That's kind of my premise this morning. We are all worshipers, and we are all always worshiping. And what we worship is either going to enrich us and expand our joy or rob us and leave us destitute. So let's unpack what worship really is. To do that, I want us to take a look at one of the central passages in the New Testament dealing with worship. It's in Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, So if you have your Bible, you can flip over to Romans chapter 12. We're going to put the verse up uh, behind me so that uh, you can follow along there. But we're going to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be taking a look at verse 1. Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All right, so I want you to kind of catch uh, the vibe of this verse. We'll unpack the words, but I want you to catch Paul's heart here, right? When he's like, I appeal to you, right? That's very formal language, but, but Paul is like a spiritual father, right? And, and, and the people he lead are his spiritual children. He, he loves um, the, the people that, that uh, look to him, right? Whether he's met them or not. Right? Whether he started that church or didn't start the church. And he's writing to them as his spiritual children. And he's saying to them, man, catch this. I appeal to you. I'm yearning for you to catch this. This is incredibly important. Right? Look, man, you need to get this right. I appeal to you. Get your worship right. Get your worship straight. It's incredibly important. So what does he say worship is? Well, he begins in the phrase before by stating that the first step of spiritual worship is presenting your bodies as living sacrifices. And that found, sound fun? Right? You're like, dude, I would much rather be wheat blowing in the wind, right? This, is, this, isn't, this doesn't sound fun. Let's all be living sacrifices, bleeding and dying, right? That that doesn't sound enjoyable, right? Why would we yearn for that? All right, don't get freaked out. 
Um, I want you to see what Paul means here because it's loaded. Um, and, and part of it is unpleasant. That's the reality of it, and, and we need to deal with that, right? In the Old Testament, um, sacrifice was at the center of worship. When the Jews came to the temple to worship God, they came with sacrifices. Why? Because they were sinners. They knew they were alienated from the holiness of God because they had rebelled, because they had chosen to, to reject God's authority and his presence and have chosen to do their own things. They became less than holy. And when they came into the presence of holiness, um, they needed a, a, a sacrifice. They, they needed, in a sense, to, they recognized that what they had done deserved justice. And, uh, and so they came through that season uh, of animal sacrifice, became a, a central part of their understanding of, of worship. And the reality is communion finds its roots in this, right, in this practice. When Jesus met with his disciples, it was the night of his betrayal, Thursday night of, of Holy Week. It's, it's called the Last Supper, and he met with them. And, and that's where we get our practice of communion, because it's on this night as they shared this meal that he broke the bread and he handed them the cup. And he said, he said those words, right? This, this bread is my body broken for you, and this cup is the new covenant in my blood spilled for you. Right? And as often as you gather, from this point forward, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Right? Now, here's the thing. That occurred on Passover night. And that was no mistake. Right? There, there are no mistakes with Jesus. When, when he's instituting that, he's saying, I am taking the idea of Passover and infusing it with a greater meaning. Now, Passover had a rich history in the Jewish culture. It went all the way back to when the Jews were delivered from slavery to Egypt. They had been enslaved in Egypt, and it came time for them to be delivered. And, and, and so God sent them a deliverer, right? Moses came, and, and, and there is a, 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 a series of plagues that are delivered on Egypt as Pharaoh hardens his heart and refuses to give up uh, the children of Israel. And the final plague comes, and it's devastating. It is the judgment of the angel of death. The angel of death comes and visited, visits all the firstborn of the land, Right? And, and it's meant to be this, this really, like, devastating moment in which um, is, uh, Egypt realizes they are helpless and, and, and that their gods have been judged and they need to, to uh, obey the God of Israel. Well, here's the thing. The nation of Israel wasn't exempt. But God did give them protection. He said, look, man, the angel of death is, is going to come. But, but here's my provision for you. I want you to take a lamb. I want you to kill it. I want you to take that blood and I want you to put it on the doorpost over your house. Right? And then when the angel of death comes, it's going to pass over your house. It'll see the blood and pass over your home. And while the angel is there to judge, the judgment will not be visited on you. Right? What Jesus is saying as, as he is... Um, giving them the Lord's Supper, he's saying, look, man, now it is my blood that will protect you. It is my blood that will be marked symbolically over the doorpost of your house, not literally, but it'll cover you. And here's the thing, when, when Jesus becomes our lamb, he does it in a way that's so different than the animal sacrifice. He actually becomes our substitute in judgment. He actually becomes the embodiment of our offense. When Jesus went to the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just quoting the Old Testament. It was the yearning call of his heart, the Son of God experiencing the wrath and separation that we deserved. And God judged our sin in him. 
He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? He, he became the embodiment of our offense. He became our substitute, our sacrificial lamb. And when we share communion, we're declaring this, right? It's our way of saying his blood is over my doorpost. I'm covered. Judgment will pass over this home, my body, this house, my life, because it's already visited his. Justice has been satisfied. Therefore, I receive grace. I am protected. He poured himself out for me on the altar of judgment so I could be forgiven, so I could be made new. And now Romans 12 calls me to be a living sacrifice in response. Jesus sacrificed himself for me. He poured himself out for me. And now I am called in response to that love to love in return, to become a living sacrifice. And Paul says this. You want to know what worship is? This is real spiritual worship. This is real spiritual worship. A heart that responds to a God who initiates a God who loves, a God who sacrifices by responding with a pouring out, a living sacrifice, a heart that comes and yields. See, here's the thing, you guys. Worship is always tied to sacrifice. Always. I know that sounds a little bit crazy, but think about it, you guys. If you think about it, you'll realize that we always sacrifice ourselves for what we love. Always. We pour out ourselves to someone or something. And we do it looking for a return, right? That's the essence of worship. We pour ourselves out to something, but we don't just randomly pour it out. We, we pour it out expecting a return. The question isn't whether or not we will be living sacrifices, but on which altar we will be poured out. We will all be living sacrifices because we were all designed by God to worship, to find something outside of ourselves, to pour ourselves out to. We were created by God, to pour ourselves out to God and to find in Him all of our deepest needs met. We are designed and created by God to worship Him, to pour ourselves out to Him, to turn to Him and His protection first, not the protection of our money or our jobs or the security of our relationships or whether someone likes us or not. We were designed to find our primary protection and, and, and strength of identity in Him. And worship is pouring ourselves out to Him first. And looking in that pouring out, the return of protection. We were were designed to revolve around His glory. Not the glory of our own accomplishments or the glory of our own vision or the glory of, of people praising our name. We were designed to revolve around His power, not ours. His influence, His success, His His glory. And in so doing, to find our greatest purpose and our greatest glory, right? Because when we pour ourselves out to God who is infinitely powerful, infinitely loving, infinitely good, infinitely protective, when we pour ourselves out to Him, our souls find rest. Because the return on the investment is always infinite. Our hearts were designed not just to pour out in worship, but continually receive the outpouring of good from the presence of God. Here's the thing, though. We rebelled against God. We know that. 
not just in Genesis chapter 3, but every day. Uh, there are marks of rebellion in our hearts against God, marks in which we are saying to God, I don't want you to be God. I want to be like God. I don't want to live for your glory. I want to live for my own. I don't want to live out of your security. I want to live for my own. I, w- I want to make my own way. I want to mark my own path, right? We're always looking. And what that has, results in is, is us continually pouring ourselves out to things that aren't God. We're continually looking to things that aren't God to be God, right? We're continuing to pour ourselves out looking for what only God can give, but we're looking in places where God's not giving it. That is a worship problem that the, problem that the Bible calls idolatry. Now, idolatry, very simply, is, is when we attribute the worth of God to something other than God by looking to it to be God to us, to do for us what only God can do or to be for us what only God can be. See, when we think of this word idolatry, it's another highly religious word that we often associate with those, those like other cultures, you know, where they, they carve things and they bow down at weird places. And, and you know, we're modern people, right? We, we don't have idols in our homes. We, we, we don't carve things in our own likeness, right? <laughs> we are an idolatrous culture. And we are an idolatrous people. We look to things that aren't God to be God for us. We look to things that aren't God to do what only God can do. This isn't something that happens out there. It happens here. We do it. We look to something other than God continually. As a worship problem, this affects every part of our everyday lives. All right, let me give you an illustration. We've got any Cubs fans in here? Raise your hand if you're brave enough. I know you're a minority in this room, but you had a good season last year, so be proud, right? We got any Cardinals fans in here? There it is. <laughs> Knew that would happen, right? Uh, anybody who hate the Patriots? Some of you are like, yes! I like the Cardinals. I hate the Patriots, right? Um, <laughs> what is this thing that we call being a fan, right? We all, you know, it's like especially we're Cardinals nation down here. Right? We're on the fringe of it. We have some Cubs people. We love you. You're not rejected. We fully, fully love you. But we're still part of kind of on the fringe of Cardinals Nation down here, right? What is that about? Cardinals Nation. I thought we were the USA. Right? We've got the Christian flag, the American flag, the Cardinals flag. I pledge allegiance to the Cardinals flag of the United States of America. Right? It's what is this? What what is this thing that we call being a fan. Fan is a short, a short, uh, it's an abbreviation, a short. It is an abbreviation of, of the word fanatic right? To be a fan is to be a fanatic. You're a fanatic for the Cardinals. You're a fanatic for the Cubs. You're a fanatic for the Bears. You're a fanatic for the Los Angeles Rams. You're a fanatic for... Yeah, I just stirred up some bad problems there. Um, All right, you guys, listen. Google defines fanatic. Google, the source of all wisdom, defines fanatic as a person filled with excessive or single-minded zeal. Anybody the spouse of a fan? Does that describe your spouse? Yeah, you're like, yeah, absolutely. All right, filled with an excessive or single-minded zeal, especially for an extreme religious or political cause. Fanatic comes from the Latin um, fanaticus. Fanaticus is a Latin word that means dealing with a temple or something inspired by God. When we call ourselves fans, 
we're calling ourselves worshipers. We're worshipers. Now stick with me. Some of you are getting defensive. Don't you challenge my God. All right, stick with me. I'm not saying rooting for a sports team is wrong. I'm not saying being a fan is wrong. But I want you to think about what happens. When your team wins, Cardinals, 2006, even just mentioning 2006, what does it do to your heart? Yeah, some of you are like, oh, yeah, Mm, yeah, that was good, right? We call it being on cloud nine, which is symbolic for where being where? In heaven, right? Right? So when our team does well, we have these heavenly experiences, right? we're, We're pouring ourselves out to our team, and when they do well, it pays back. Right? We get joy. We, we feel lifted. We, we feel like the glory that was theirs is somehow mine as well. And when I walk down the street in my Cardinals t-shirt or my, my actual game jersey, I am glowing with the glory. Right? What happens when your team loses? Yeah, that's a bad day, especially when it's a big game right? Some of you honestly drop, literally, you drop into depression, right? Your day is ruined. You are grumpy. You are mean, right? You are sour. You become really irritable and easily provoked, right? You guys, married to a fanatic. Am I speaking the truth? Yes. Fans, you get really ugly when your God lets you down, right? I remember, right? 99, the St. Louis Rams, the, 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 the dream season, right? Nobody expected them to win. And, and, and here they go, game after game, winning, 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 all the way to the Super Bowl, right? I mean, that just, man, I was glowing, absolutely loved it. And then every year after that, I got pounded with the futility of loss, right? Now, it got less and less as they became more and more losers. And I expected them, you know, I didn't expect them to win. But, but 2000, they should have beat the Patriots, right? They sh- it was like, they should have won that game, right? I still remember where I was. I was on a road trip coming home. I stopped that night. I could have made it home. I stopped. I got a motel room. Why? So I could watch the game. I regretted that decision ever since. You know what I'm saying? Because when your God lets you down, man, it hurts. All right, let me explain what's happening here. It is called worship. See, worship comes from an English word, worthship. It's where we find worth. You're, you're, you're looking for something worthy of your affection, worthy of the outpouring of your hope and the outpouring of your joy and the outpouring of, of your, your identity, right? It's, it's attributing worth to something. What you find worthy of the pouring out of your affection and energy and devotion. Now, I don't want to just call out sports here because it's not alone. It can be anything, you guys. We, we all worship and we all do it all the time, right? Some of you worship your careers. You're really pouring yourself out to your job, to your career, hoping it's going to make you who you want to be, help you accomplish what you want to accomplish, give you the glory or the name or the security or the fame or, or, or save you from becoming what you don't want to be, right? You're pouring yourself out to career and to success. Some of you, it's your family. You, you're, just, you're just, you're so obsessed, man, your kids, You love your kids, you love your kids, and you can't bear the thought that they might not be successes, that you might fail them, that that somehow, somewhere along the way, something's not going to work out for them, they're going to look back and say it was your fault. It's one of your great fears, 
right? You're, you want your family to, to look right and be right, right? You're consumed with, with it being in public and, and, and your appearance on social media and how people see you and your family. Some of you, it's fitness and exercise, right? It's kind of a joke, right? Crossfitters, right? What do Crossfitters talk about? Yeah, that's it, right? Where'd you CrossFit? Man, I went to this new gym and I CrossFitted. Well, what kind of CrossFitting did you do? I did the CrossFitting I did at the other gym, but we did it in a new gym and I sweated with new people in a new place, right? We're just talking about CrossFit all the time. You see my abs? Woo! Let me take a selfie, right? Wait, let me get in the right light because I don't look good there, right? I got to get the right shadow. Calling you out a little bit. But it's true, right? We get this idea with, in our culture, we're obsessed with body image. If I could just have the right body image, if I could just have the right shape, if I just had people jealous of my body, then I'd be happy, right? So we pour ourselves out. We do CrossFit at four in the morning. Tell me that's not a sacrifice. You are a living sacrifice, right? Some of you, it's food. Having the perfect food experience in the perfect place. And, and, and when you get bored of that perfect food and experience in that perfect place, you discover the new perfect place to have the new perfect food experience. You travel to foreign places to have the perfect food in the perfect place and have the perfect food experience. Then you post pictures of your perfect food and your perfect place for your perfect food experience so that you can have other people see how perfect your food and your perfect food experience is. Ironically, it can even be your religious behavior. Some people turn to the church, they get religion as a way of avoiding God. You realize you can actually worship your religion and your religious experience without ever worshiping the God of your religion? Flannery O'Connor said something very profound. She said that some people have found the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. And people do that. They find religion and they become very self-righteous very self-righteous in their ability to not do the things you're not supposed to do and to do the things you're supposed to do and to condemn the people who do the things you're not supposed to do and be better than the people who are doing the things you're supposed to do, but I'm doing them better or more often or more thoroughly or secretly feeling absolutely condemned and shamed because you realize it's all a sham, that you're really not doing it as well as you're pretending to do it, that you're really not the image that you're portraying. We can do it, man. We can pour ourselves out to, to anything that we value. What I think will most enrich my life, I will worship. I will pour myself out to it. I will give my time, my money, my heart, affections to what I worship. And I become a living sacrifice. We all worship all the time. We are all living sacrifices. We pour ourselves out to these things with an expectation of return. This will fulfill me. This will make me happy. This will make me worthwhile. This will finally be the anchor of my identity. Some of you might be asking very good questions like, Steve, aren't all those good things? Calling me out for loving my family, isn't that a good thing? Am I supposed to stop loving my family? Am I supposed to stop working hard at my job? Am am I supposed to stop taking care of my body and being fit? No. No, these these are good things. But this is what happens with idolatry. We take good things and we try to make them ultimate things. We take things that are gifts from God and look to them and say, you're going to be my God. And in the process, we destroy the goodness in the thing that drew us to it to begin with. We destroy the very things we love. You know why? Because we put God weight on them and they can't bear it. And that career that was so fulfilling 
when you first started in the end, gives you everything you were chasing, but doesn't give you anything that you really needed. And that relationship that that you so craved and clung to and thought, man, this is my security, this is my identity, finally I'm loved, and you put so much weight on it, you destroy the very intimacy that you crave. You put so much weight on your children that they end up feeling alienated. They feel like failures because you have so much need for their success. We end up destroying the very things that we love. You guys, listen to me. Idols never fail to fail. And we never fail to forget it. That's why Paul is pleading with us as his spiritual children. Get this right. Right? Get this right. Notice how he pleads at the beginning of the verse. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. All right, this is the key to the whole thing, you guys, right here. This is the key to the whole thing. You can't fix your heart. It's one of the the great ironies. You can do all this heart searching and soul searching. You can identify your heart idols. You can identify the things that you're looking to, that that you're trying to make them God. You can see the ways your your heart is leading you in the wrong direction. And, And if you've ever done that, then you know where that leads you, to the despair of the reality that you can't change your heart. You might be able to change your idols. You might be able to rearrange the furniture, but you can't change your heart. That's what happens when the guy gives up drugs and goes to religion. And and all he's done is shifted his his identity from from being the one who's totally self-indulgent to the one who's now totally self-controlled. That idol will fail him just as surely as the first. I appeal to you, not by self-control, Not by your ability to fix yourself. Not by the guilt that you feel for the wrong that you do. Not for the shame that you experience when your idols fail you. I don't motivate you by those things. I motivate you by the mercy of God. See, idolatry isn't a problem of the willpower. It's a problem of delight. Your heart is bent by sin to delight in things that are not God. To seek delight from things that are not God. And the solution for this isn't willpower. It's love. Because nothing can change the human heart like love. Love is the only thing powerful enough to not just change your behavior, but transform your heart and recenter your worship. An experience of love can reawaken your delight in God as being intimately and ultimately delightful. Otherwise, you're just rearranging the furniture. This is why we need the gospel, you guys. The good news that God loves us as we are, that he loves us too much to leave us as we are, that he sent Jesus to die for us as we are, to deliver us into what we should be. Right? He took the penalty of our sin so that we could be cleansed and forgiven and delivered into his righteousness and changed into his likeness. This is why we need the gospel. It's the only cure for an idolatrous heart. And it is the only freedom offered. Because when we see the incredible mercy of God extended to us in Christ, 
when we see the God of the universe humbling himself, taking the form of a man, dying in our place as our substitute, rising again in new life, not just for himself, but for us, our heart's affections are reawakened for God. Scripture tells us that we love him because he first loved us. See, your love for God isn't a choice that you make. Your love for God isn't something that you determine you're going to do. This is going to be the new value that drives my life, my love for God. No, it's God's love for you. And as you experience God's love for you and open up to the fact that the God of the universe loves you as you are, not as you should be, not as you can make yourself to be on your best religious day, as you are, when you get that, it awakens within you a responding love that awakens within you a new delight. A delight in God as supremely delightful. And your heart's affections are transformed. And our minds are renewed by the truth that the gospel speaks to us. You guys listen to me. We love our idols. We love our idols. That's why we pour ourselves out to them. And we are deceived into thinking that they are going to um, somehow infuse our life with meaning. And they don't. Because idols never fail to fail. There's a great quote in your bulletin by C.S. Lewis that says, human history is one long story of mankind trying to ultimately trying to find ultimate delight outside of God. Right? <laughs> you want to understand all the tragedy and the hurt of human suffering. You want to understand why man is so inhumane to man. It is because we are seeking what only God can give in places God doesn't give it. And as a result, we become twisted and hurt and broken. All right, this brings us back to the importance of communion. The early church was devoted to the breaking of bread. They did it every day. It says they went from house to house breaking bread, right? It was at the center of their worship. Jesus commanded it at the Last Supper, right? He said, as often as you meet together, do this in remembrance of me. Why? Why was it so important? Why did they have communion whenever they met? Why did they they make sure that it was a regular part of their rhythm? Because every time we take communion, our hearts are once again confronted with the mercies of God. Well, don't you think if you do it too often, it's going to grow old? Only if we allow our hearts to grow cold. Every time we come to the elements of communion, we are once again confronted, right? Every time we break the bread, we are reminded that it's our sin that broke the body of Christ. Every time we come to the cup of the new covenant to remember the covenant that God made to us in in the blood of Christ, we are reminded that we have a God who loved us enough to die for us. I was so broken and so sinful that it required him to die. I was so loved that he did it. It brings me back to that place where I see him taking my place. Dying my death, bearing the consequence of my sin, and looking at me not with anger and not with distrust and not with judgment, but with love. See, when we sit at the foot of the cross and fill our vision with God's mercy, the God who took our justice that we might receive his grace, it changes us. And we come to love him because he first loved us. And in that love, we start to taste freedom. And we will come to love God and find him ultimately worthy of our heart's devotion. 
The only way to defeat a passion is with a deeper passion. The only way to reorient the heart of love is with a deeper love. So we come and fill our vision once again with the love of God that our hearts might respond in love to God. And then it frees us. It changes us. It transforms us. That's not about rearranging furniture. That's not about changing behavior. Your behavior will change. Your life will change. But not because of your willpower or your ability or your religion. Your religion. It'll be because you love God, the God who loves you. And out of love, man, you will be freed to joy. See, when we center our heart of worship right, everything else finds its proper orbit in our lives. We come to value the gifts of God as gifts. It actually frees us to enjoy them more fully because we're not putting on them God weight. We're resting on God and enjoying what God gives. We want to be a people who pour out our lives on the right altars and worship the one who is worthy of the outpouring of our souls.